Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started here. And uh, I can see myself on TV and all that stuff right there now. So we are uh, picking up in our study of the kingdom and the prophets uh, in the book of Isaiah. And I believe we are up to number four. Now, did everybody get a handout when they came in? Because I think that handout starts at number seven. All right? So that's just, I'm, I'm ahead of you all a little bit. So we're not going to be getting to that page today, I don't think. Things go as normal. Uh, we won't be getting there today. But... Um, we might get uh, we might get close to that. So um, let me also remind you that um, we had the the plan was a couple weeks ago. Actually, it's been longer than a couple weeks ago, but uh, we had planned not to meet next week uh, because we're not going to be here uh, this time next week. Um, our family will be in Alabama. So um, we had, uh, I think I mentioned that before, I thought I did, told somebody about it. It might have been the person at the gas station. <laughs> but anyway, just, uh, just uh, remind you of that, that uh, uh, so next uh, week, which is the 11th, right? I think it's the 11th that uh, we will uh, not be meeting. So in, in lieu of our not meeting, what you can do is take those notes that you have and uh, you can look at those passages and um, you can, you can kind of prepare ahead of time and, and what you're looking for with the notes in one hand and your Bible on the other hand is you're looking for Things that talk about the kingdom. Now, like tonight's notes, basically those are just expositions of those chapters. I just kind of outlined the chapter as they uh, come pretty much. Um, but you can look at those and you can say, well, this is related to the kingdom. This talks about the kingdom uh, here and describe it in your own words. And um, you, can, you can do that just as well as I can, I think. And... That'll give you a head start on our covering that. So, uh, last week was, uh, that was a, uh, was not planned <laughs> at all. Um, but uh, next week our absence is, is planned. And um, so, uh, just keep that in mind. Should be uh, reminded on Sunday as well. And... All right, so I think uh, we are going to get into chapter 14 here to begin our time. And so let me pray and then a real quick review. And uh, then we'll get into Isaiah chapter 14. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us, for your grace and your mercy on us. We're thankful that we can meet and that we can study your word. And um, Lord, we realize that it is important about what you have said about uh, the future and how 
when you said many things about the future had happened uh, hundreds and thousands of years ago, and uh, we can even see some of those prophecies fulfilled. And so we're thankful to be able to see that and know that, and it gives us great confidence in knowing that the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled just as you have said they will. And so we're so thankful for your faithfulness and the assurance that we have in you and the fact that we have your testimony, your witness in our Bibles, your word. And so we ask that you would be with us tonight as we study your word and that uh, the Holy Spirit who we have dwelling in us would help us understand these spiritual things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin to look at the book of Isaiah with regard to the kingdom, um, we looked at chapter 2 and uh, I titled that the place of the kingdom on earth. And we, we see that the kingdom is very much connected to a physical earthly kingdom. Um, on number two there in your notes, which is Isaiah chapter 9, it explains to us the Messiah and the kingdom. And of course, uh, it's talking about this child that is born, the son that is given, but, and it describes for us there what his kingdom will be like. And so we notice that, and it gives us some characteristics that can be expected there of the kingdom and the king. Then on point three, which is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, Again, we have more information about the nature of the messianic king and his kingdom. We see that he's related to the family of Jesse. That's the father of King David. We see his personal character, his ruling qualities, and that the kingdom's going to be peaceful. It will be a peaceful kingdom. We also saw the Gentiles' relationship to that kingdom and that the kingdom will unite the Jews uh, together. And uh, so uh, at the end of chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, we see that different names are used to refer to the Jews. We have the name Ephraim that is used, and that refers to the northern kingdom. And we have the name Judah, and that, of course, refers to the southern kingdom. And these are brought together. So uh, the, the two kingdoms, the divided kingdom of Israel will no longer be divided. It will be all gathered under one. And so now under point four, which is Isaiah chapter 14... We're going to consider the fact that during the kingdom will be a time when the, Jew, when the Gentiles want to be connected to the Jews. I mean, think, of, think about that statement. Just think about that in the context of our world today. Gentiles wanting to be connected 
to Jews. How many Gentiles do you know that want to be connected to the Jews? The only ones are going to be Gentiles like us. <laughs> That's it. Uh, most Gentiles today don't have much of an opinion, uh, at least a high opinion, of the Jews. You just think about all the nations on the earth and how many of them are friendly towards Israel, the modern state of Israel, and how many of them just tolerate Israel, you know? Uh, most of them just tolerate Israel. Matter of fact, from, from what uh, I can understand, anti-Semitism is on the rise, especially in Europe. And so in the Western uh, countries, it's on the rise. So uh, the information in this passage is so counterculture to that. It's, it's like the opposite. So let's take a look at this. So we're just looking at verses 1 and 2, chapter 14, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, for the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then the people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive whose captives they were and rule over their oppressors. So you notice right away here right in the first phrase of the verses that there's a focus on Jacob. There's a focus on Israel. You see this, it says in uh, verse 1, Jacob says Israel. Then at the end of the verse, it talks about the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob. And uh, in verse 2, it talks about the house of Israel. So here we see there's this focus on the Jews, all of those uh, names are just referring to the collective whole of the Jews, the Jewish nation at the time. We also see that it speaks of their own land. Look at the end of verse 1. So the Lord is going to settle them in their own land. Now, what land is that? What's their own land? The promised land, that's right. The land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the land. And so God's going to settle them in their own land. Now, in verse 2, how else is this land referred to? Look at verse 2 there. I'm not going to spoon feed you the Lord's land that's right the Lord's land so isn't that interesting that the land that they're going to be settled in is not only referred to as their land but it's also referred to as the land of the Lord belongs to the Lord and of course if we know our Bible that makes sense because the Jews are 
the Lord's people. And the land is his land that he's given to them to possess. So it speaks of their own land. It also, in verse 1, speaks of strangers. Look at the second, ver or second sentence in verse 1. It says, the strangers will be joined with them. They will cling to the house of Jacob. Now, question then becomes, who are these strangers? Who are these strangers? Well, from just these two verses, the strangers have to be someone other than the people referred to by the name Jacob, Israel, house of Jacob, and house of Israel. So it's got to be somebody besides that, right? Now, when the Bible starts to distinguish between the Jews and everybody else, what kind of language does it use? What kind of terminology? What kind of name does it use? You have the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay, the Bible makes it simple, right? Not the 200 and some nations in the world. It's just Jews and Gentiles. That's all it is. So when it says strangers here, who's it talking about? Gentiles, non-Jews, Gentiles. So these are the strangers that, that are mentioned here. Now, what do these strangers do? What do they do? They are going to join themselves. They're going to join themselves with them. See that in verse 1? The strangers will, actually it's not strangers, it's the stranger. Okay, it's the stranger. Um, singular, it's not plural, it's singular actually. So the stranger is going to cause himself to be joined to, to cling to them, to the house of Jacob. So this means Gentiles at this time, Gentiles are going to cause themselves, they themselves are going to want to cling to and join with the Jews. That's what they're going to do. And uh, the word joined is kind of an interesting uh, word because it's the idea of a close connection. It's the idea of a close connection. Uh, and it speaks of this close connection in two ways, this word joined. So if you um, hold your finger here and turn back to Genesis 29:34. Genesis 29, verse 34. I'm just illustrating the meaning of this word joined. It says, She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me. That's our word joined, that we're attached there will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Now, what's that, 
what is being spoken of here? Why does it, why does uh, Leah say, why does she say, when Levi's born, now my husband will become attached to me? Is he going to, are they going to have surgery? Does this involve staples and stitches? No. What's it talking about? Affection and, and this kind of loving relationship. A loving relationship. So this is, a, this is talking about a close, intimate type of relationship. Now, this word joined is not just talk, talking about the affection between a husband and wife. It also speaks of a saving relationship. A saving relationship. So turn back to Isaiah but this time we've got to go almost all the way to the end of it, to chapter 56. Go all the way to chapter 56, Isaiah chapter 56. And I'm just going to start reading in verse 1. And I want you to pay attention to how this passage is very similar to Isaiah chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, but it also wants you to pay attention to the, the uh, language that is talking about salvation for the Gentiles here. So chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of a foreigner, now who would the son of a foreigner be? Be a Gentile, right? A Gentile. Do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. So in verse 3 here, the prophet is saying, Don't let a Gentile who has joined himself to the Lord, who has connected himself to the Lord, who is doing everything that the Jews are supposed to do up above in the first two verses. This Gentile should never say that the Lord has separated me from his people, that he's been excluded from God's blessings. Can't say that. Then he goes on, and uh, the second part of verse 3, it says, Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath and chooses what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even so them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also... The sons of the foreigners, Gentiles, 
who joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them, even the sons of foreigners, these Gentiles, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So this is, this is speaking of the salvation, the spiritual condition of these Gentiles who have connected themselves to the Lord. And uh, what's really interesting about this passage is if you go back to Leviticus and you go back to Exodus, where we have the law that's given. Are Gentiles allowed to come into the temple? No. Are eunuchs allowed to come into the temple? No. Now they're both allowed to come in. So this is talking about their, their salvation. So in the kingdom, in the kingdom, Gentiles are going to be connected to the Lord and they're going to want to join with and cling to the Jews because their blessings, the blessings that the Gentiles receive are based upon God's blessing of the Jews. So one of the things we should notice here is that, you know, how the Jews are going to treat people who oppress them. So go back to chapter 14. Let's get out of chapter 56 here. We're actually going to end up in chapter 56 sometime in the future. We'll look at that a little bit more. But in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, we consider how the Jews are going to treat these people. It says in verse 2, Then people will take them from their uh, take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. So uh, these people, these Gentiles, are going to want to cling to the Jews. And the Jews are going to say, well, come on, but you're going to be our servants we're no longer your captives. You're the ones who are captives to us. And I would just point out that this is not oppressive language. It's not talking about mistreating uh, these people. These people want to come to Israel. And they don't mind being servants of the Jews because of the blessing. So in, in chapter 14 here, we see the preeminence of the nation of Israel over all nations who held them in captivity. Um, from a whole Bible perspective, one of the more important things to note here is the distinction that is drawn between Israel and the Gentiles. Uh, some Christians claim 
that the church has become true Israel. If this were the case, who are the Gentiles that are mentioned here? Who are, how do the Gentiles fit in? Based on this passage and other passages like chapter 56, the Gentiles cannot just be unbelievers in general. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. There's um, some places in the New Testament that speak of unbelievers, just calls them like Gentiles, right? But you can't say that Gentiles are representative of all unbelievers. You can't do that because in these passages, in the kingdom, the Gentiles are believers. So Gentiles can't represent unbelievers when they're believers. So any idea that takes the distinction between the nation of Israel and the nation and the Gentile nations and it eliminates that distinction or changes that distinction or muddles that distinction has serious problems with how to understand the Old Testament prophetic passages about the kingdom. So that you can't just do that, that you can't just turn the church into true Israel. And that's pretty common. That's a pretty common thing. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in the Old Testament to do that. And uh, you can't say, well, that's the Old Testament. It's talking about the Old Testament economy. Well, that doesn't work because the passages we're looking at are talking about the kingdom. And so whether you're post-mill, ah-mill, or pre-mill, you're either in the kingdom now or the kingdom's coming in the future. However you take it, there's Gentile believers in there and there's Israel in there. You, you can't muddle them together. You can't, you can't turn the church, which is made up of Gentiles and Jews, you can't turn that into Israel. Just, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense with what the Bible says. So uh, in chapter 14, we see that the Gentiles are going to be connected to the Jews in the kingdom. They're going to want to be connected to them. And they're going to want to be connected to them because uh, the Gentiles understand that their blessings that they have that come from the Lord are based upon the blessings of the Jews. Not that, not that the Gentiles get all of the blessings that the Jews get, but that the blessings that they do get are based upon how God has blessed the Jews. Okay. Let's go to uh, chapter 25 now. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. This is point five there in your notes. And chapter 25 gives us the triumphs in the kingdom. And, and by the way, um, one of the things you notice as you go through the book of Isaiah is Isaiah repeats himself over and over and over again. He says the same thing kind of over and over and over again. He says it in a different way. And uh, it, it's a different approach to the same argument that he's making over and over and over again. So uh, triumphs in the kingdom, chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. The first thing we notice is in verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5, we see the praise of the Lord because of his triumph over his enemies. Verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. 
I will praise your name. Why? Because you have done wonderful things. Your counsels are uh, your counsels of old are faithfulness and true. For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens. That's not talking about UFOs. Okay, just to be, just to be clear about that. It's talking about people who aren't citizens. Uh, you will re uh, reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. So the context here is one clearly of praise. I will exalt, I will praise. And so we see why the praise. Why is this one giving praise? And we see this indicated to us by the word for. We see a number of fours and F-O-R's in there. For you have done wonderful things. For your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. In other words, God's going to do what he says. You're going to be praised because you do great things. And you're faithful. You keep your word. And now, what are the wonderful things that the Lord does? Well, the wonderful things he does is he destroys the cities of the Gentiles. <laughs> so, if you're a Jew, that's a wonderful thing. If you're not a Jew, that might not seem so uh, wonderful. And the result of this, the result of this... Verse 3, that therefore, see therefore at the beginning of verse 3. So the result of these wonderful things that the Lord does is that the Gentiles, the strong people, the terrible nations will glorify and fear the Lord. And so these, this is talking about the triumphs of the Lord and uh, the prophet Isaiah says, this is a praise. This is, the Lord should be praised for this. By the way, that term wonderful, if I'm remembering this correctly, it just means something extraordinary. Um, it doesn't always mean a good thing. It could be a bad thing. It's just this extraordinary thing. Um, as we keep on going down through the passage here, as we come to verses 6 through 8, we have seen that the Lord's to be praised because of his triumph over the Gentile nations. And now we see the kingdom blessings of the Lord. The kingdom blessings of the Lord. Verse 6. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. 
And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So it, it begins by talking about this mountain. Of course, we've already mentioned that that term mountain is, is often used in reference to a kingdom or a government. So when it talks about the mountain of the Lord, it's talking about the kingdom of the Lord or the government of the Lord. And the, the blessings of the Lord here are described as his provisions of a feast. So it talks about choice pieces, the idea is choice pieces of food or meat, um, wines, fat things, full of marrow, well-refined wines. These are all images of a feast. And very often in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament and in relation to the Jews, the blessings of the Lord are viewed in very concrete terms, um, terms that really have a daily significance to the life of a Jew, such as having good food and good drink. So remember, part of the blessings that the Lord is giving to Israel while they're in the land is that the land will produce for them. Now, what's it going to produce for them? Gold, silver, coal, diamonds? No, that's not what the Lord says. He's going to produce food. He's going to produce food and drink for them. Also, the blessing of the Lord includes him swallowing up death and wiping away tears. So these blessings are all part of the millennial kingdom. And they're not just blessings for the Jews, but they're blessings for all people. So it says, and uh, look at verse 8. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and, rebuke, and the rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. So the Jews are not going to be held and uh, they're not going to be despised anymore. So here's the blessings, the kingdom blessings of the Lord. It's all part of the millennial kingdom. And as we come to verses 9 through 12, we see the testimony of Israel to the Lord's triumphs in his kingdom. So we have the triumphs given in the first part. We have the blessings given in the second part. Now here in the third part. We have Israel talking about it. So verse 9. And it will be said in that day. So by the way, that's a key phrase in the book of Isaiah. That day, we see it over and over and over again. And it's talking about in the day of the kingdom, in the day of the millennium, in the day when the messianic king is ruling on the earth. And it will be in that day... Uh, it will be said in that day, behold, so they're going to say, somebody's going to say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest. And Moab shall be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. 
And he will spread out his hands in the midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, down to the dust. So this is talking about in the day of the kingdom. And this is the testimony of the nation of Israel. And so you see the distinction here. These people who are speaking and they uh, go on and they speak about Moab, a Gentile uh, nation. And we see here their testimony is that God saves, God saves them and defeats their enemies. That's their testimony. This is what God does. God saves us and he defeats our enemies. So the triumphs of the kingdom are related to the Lord saving Israel and defeating the Gentile nations. However, we also need to see that while the Lord defeats the Gentiles, after they are defeated, they are brought in to receive some blessings. Now, I want to be careful to understand that just because Gentiles are receiving blessings doesn't mean they receive all the blessings that are promised to Israel. Uh, God's still dealing with the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations as distinct entities. And so we find that uh, this kingdom triumphs that are mentioned here indicates to us that God is going to do what he says he will do. He's going to do it. Therefore, he should be praised and he should be exalted. So in this passage that talks about these triumphs in the kingdom, um, the Lord is supposed to be praised for all this. And, and uh, he is to be praised now before he even does this because um, the certainty of these happening uh, is absolutely sure that these things will happen. So that's, uh, that's the triumphs of the kingdom in chapter 25. Chapter 25. So now let's go to chapter 26. Chapter 26. And we're not going to go through every chapter. It just happens to be this way right now. <laughs> We probably could go through every chapter and pick stuff out, but we're not going to do that. But here's chapter 26, and this is the kingdom hymn of praise. The kingdom hymn of praise. So this is a song that will be sung in the millennial kingdom by the redeemed. It's a song of confidence in and thankfulness to the Lord. That's what this is. So notice in verses 1 through 6, verses 1 through 6, the humble, uh, another way to say the humble is those who trust God, are exalted, but the prideful are brought low. Verse 1, in that day, I told you that, that phrase shows up all the time, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. What are they going to sing? This is it. We have a strong city. Would you like me to sing this song? <laughs> we have a strong city 
God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. For he bring, brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays low, he lays it low to the ground and brings it down to dust. That's a repeated idea there. The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. So again, this is talking about in the day of the kingdom, in the day of the kingdom. And it's expressing to us that those who enter into the kingdom are the ones who trust in God. These are the ones who enter into the kingdom. And it, it, this is an expression of how God will deliver the Jews from their oppressors. And, and one of the things that we see here, and we see a little bit later, is that the kingdom is going to be a time of peace. Now, in these verses here, in these first six verses, we have probably one of the more uh, well-known, one of the more quoted verses from the Bible, at least from the Old Testament. It probably shows up in all kind of Christian knickknacks all over Christian bookstores, and that's verse 3. See verse 3 there, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So I'm probably going to ruin a verse that you like. Okay, but let's think about this verse. Let's think about it. What's the context of this verse? What's the context? It's a verse about millennial truth, about millennial truth, not about truth today. It's about millennial truth, something in the millennium. Second, we see that it comes from what God has done in establishing the millennial kingdom. So whatever happens in this verse is the result of what God does to establish the millennium. Second, or thirdly, it's for people who enter into the kingdom. Okay? This is a song that will be sung in the millennium. Okay, so let's think about that. This is the song that's going to be sung in the millennium. This isn't the song that's going to be sung today. This is a millennial song. All right? And this is what the people are going to say. They're going to say verse 3 in the millennium. Fourthly, this is a song that the Jews are going to sing. This is, this is a Jewish song. Right? They're talking about what the Lord has done for them. And uh, so when you look at verse 3 here, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. Um, you know, the broader principle that I guess you could draw from this passage is that the person who trusts in the Lord, uh, the Lord will give him a peace of mind. Okay. 
That's true. That's true. It's just not what this verse says. Okay, <laughs> that's true. And yeah, Romans 1.7 talks about that. Romans 8.6 talks about that. Uh, Galatians 5.22 talks, you know, the freedom of the spirits. One of them's peace. All right, so it talks about that. That's about peace of mind. That's not what this passage is talking about, though. The message of this passage is that God brings peace to the nation of Israel. This is not talking about peace of mind. This is talking about peace as opposed to war. Okay, and, and so it says here, he will keep him in, it's, it's not really perfect peace. It's peace, peace. Okay, it's peace, peace. Shalom, shalom. That's what it's talking about. Absolute peace. Absolute peace. So he will keep him in perfect peace peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And this is talking about the righteous nation that was just mentioned above. And this is, that is the nation of Israel. So this is talking, this is talking about God establishing peace in Israel. Um, so yeah, hopefully I didn't just uh, ruin that verse totally for you, but it's not talking about the Lord giving you a peace of mind. And uh, so um, if you want the Lord to give you peace of mind, quote Philippians 4, 7 or something like that, but just don't quote this verse because that's not, that's not what it means. Let's go on to verses 7 through 9 here. Let's get off that real quick in case somebody throws stones. Let's go to 7 9 here. And here we see the kingdom belief is reflected in kingdom living. Kingdom belief is reflected in kingdom living. Verse 7. The way of the just is uprightness. Of course, you know the, when it says the way, it's talking about how you live. The way of the just, the way the, the just live is uprightness. Almost upright, you weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for your and uh, for the remembrance of you. With my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So you see the emphasis about how you are to live, how one lives in the kingdom, uprightness, okay, um, according to the judgments of the Lord, having a desire for the name of the Lord, having a desire to remember the Lord, um, having this desire even at night and early in the morning. So these are all talking about behaviors in the kingdom. We also find that even in the kingdom, the perfect environment for righteous living. Okay, you think about what would be the perfect environment for everybody to live right. Everybody to live righteously. Well, it's the kingdom. It's the kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ will be ruling and reigning in the kingdom. 
Okay, so notice that even in the kingdom, there will be those who are unrighteous, uh, who will only learn righteousness through judgment. Notice what it says there at the end of verse 9. The inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. They'll learn righteousness. How are they going to learn righteousness? Look at the phrase right before that. When your judgments are in the earth. That's how they're going to learn righteousness. I think that's probably going to be a hard lesson for uh, many of them. Uh, but the, the emphasis here is when you stack up the beliefs of the kingdom, there should be a, a, a how you live should reflect those beliefs. Uh, verses 10 through 11, verses 10 through 11, we see the kingdom, the time of the kingdom, contrasted with Isaiah's day, verses 10 through 11. Verse 10, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not hold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. So even, even though this passage is about the kingdom, we have to remember this book of the Bible was not written to people in the kingdom. Right? This isn't written to people in the kingdom. This is written to people in Isaiah's day and people coming after Isaiah. It's written to the Jews that Isaiah has been sent to prophesy to. It's written to those who Isaiah is warning about the judgment that is coming, but also as a reminder of God's goodness to them. So no one's going to be able to claim that their environment is to blame for their bad behavior. No, one's, no one can claim that. Um, why can't they claim that? Because even when there is grace, the wicked will not learn righteousness. Even when all those around are upright, the wicked will deal unjustly. They will not recognize the glory of the Lord. Not going, they won't do it. And so your environment is not what causes you to sin. Did Adam and Eve's environment cause them to sin? Nope. And the kingdom. There will be unrighteous people in the kingdom. Will that environment cause them to sin? No. No. Because the, the judgment that will come in the kingdom will be immediate and perfect. Okay, let's keep going here. We've got to get done this chapter. Uh, verses 12 through 15. Verses 12 through 15. The kingdom is a time of peace that is established by God. It's a time of peace that will be established by God. Verse 12. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have done all your works in us. O Lord our God, masters beside you have dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. 
They are dead, they will not live. They are deceased, they will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. So God brings peace. And so the kingdom is going to be a kingdom of peace. And God will deal with those oppressors of the Jews. So he's going, to, he's going to deal with all them so that there's peace. Nobody's going to be attacking Israel uh, in the kingdom. They will have peace on every side. And the Lord's going to punish them. Um, verses 16 through 18. Here we see that the kingdom is going to be preceded by a time of trouble. A time of chastening. Time of trouble, a time of chastening. Verse 16, Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So this is talking about a time when the Jews are going to be in trouble. They're going to be suffering. They're going to have pain, and they're not going to be able to save themselves. So uh, as Isaiah writes this, he's kind of looking back from the kingdom back to what comes before the kingdom. Okay, so, but from Isaiah's day itself, he's looking forward. This hasn't happened yet. From Isaiah's, the time when he's writing, this hasn't happened yet. But from the kingdom perspective, it comes before the kingdom. <clears throat> and Israel has tried with all of her might to solve her problems, and she has utterly failed to do anything. That's why... Why the picture here is the a pregnant woman who is delivering. What happens when a pregnant woman delivers? You get a baby, right? You get a baby. They might be yelling and hollering, but you get a baby. But what does it say that Israel has brought forth and bearing a child? Verse 18. Wind. So nothing. They haven't brought forth anything in all their efforts to save themselves, not produce the thing. Um, and this is because they have failed to recognize that their deliverance only comes from the Lord. And that much of their pain is the result of their own disobedience. And it's really the Lord's chastening. So there's this time of trouble. Now... In our time today, we would call that time of trouble what? What do we call it? Tribulation. It's the tribulation. Um, Daniel's 70th week. Uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. That's what we would, that's what we would uh, call it. And it precedes the millennium. It precedes their blessing. Uh, verse 19 now. Verse 19. Keeping on moving here. We've got two minutes. Of course, James told me my watch is fast, by a minute and 30 seconds, so I got a little bit longer. 
In verse 19, we see that the kingdom will be preceded by the resurrection of Old Testament saints. The kingdom's preceded by the resurrection of Old Testament saints. Look what it says. Your dead shall live together. Now, I want you to get this. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Whose dead body? Whose dead body is being talked about? Isaiah's dead body. Okay? So Isaiah's expressing confidence in what? Resurrection. Resurrection. Okay, so your, uh, your dead, your dead ones, shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So this is talking about resurrection. So Isaiah, just after he just spoke about this pain, this suffering, you've done everything to save yourself and you can't do anything. That's a pretty miserable state. Sounds like there's no hope. And then he goes right in and he talks about their resurrection. So he's giving them encouragement. And here's the encouragement. Even though many of you will die during the time of the Lord's chastening, he will raise the faithful up from the dead. There will be a resurrection to life. Isaiah even including himself in this. this. This also points out that whatever the kingdom is, what all the kingdom might include, a fundamental aspect of the kingdom is that it is physical. These people are resurrected. What is resurrected? They're dead bodies. So resurrection, as much as we like to think about it in relation to eternal life, resurrection is about raising a physical body that has died and giving it life and restoring that body. We would call it glorifying it. That's what resur resurrection is very physical. It's not, a, it's not a spirit thing. It's a physical body thing. And so the fact that we have this resurrection that precedes the kingdom, it lets us know the kingdom's not just something that is uh, spiritual. It's a physical. It's a physical kingdom, and it's going to be occupied by real physical flesh and bone bodies. I got a uh, letter from a Jehovah's Witness the other day. And uh, one of the things it went on and on about was that the kingdom was spiritual. Kingdom's just a spiritual thing, just a spiritual thing. Um, what is really sad is that type of thinking isn't just uh, located in cults. That type of thinking is located in Christian churches as well, where the kingdom is just a spiritual thing. So there is no reality to it. 
because they think that the kingdom is just and it is only going to heaven. So even in their mind, heaven is just a, a, a spiritual thing. It's not, not a physical thing. But here we see it is physical, 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 physical. So enough of that. That's verse 19. Let's go to verse 20 and 21 and close this out real quick. So here we see the kingdom is coming. So don't be disheartened by this brief time of trouble. The kingdom's coming. Don't be disheartened by this brief time of trouble. So uh, this chapter begins with praise. It talks about how your thinking, your belief about the kingdom should reflect, be reflected in how you live, in kingdom living. Um, we see there's a contrast between the way the Jews live in Isaiah's day, which is wickedly, and how the kingdom will be. The kingdom will be a time of, of peace, but it's going to be preceded by a time of trouble. And after that trouble, there will be a resurrection and then the kingdom will come. So look at verse 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut uh, your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation has passed. For behold... The Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her stain. So Isaiah is calling Israel to wait with patience because of this time of indignation that will pass. It will pass. This time of trouble that they're going to experience, this time of suffering that they're going to have is going to pass. So they wait with patience. And when that time is over, the Lord will come and he's going to judge the inhabitants of the earth, which I would take as the Gentiles who mistreat the Jews during that time of chastening. Um, it's God's chastening. God sets the rules for that. And when the Gentiles overreach, God will punish them for it, just like he did the Babylonians, just like he did the Persians, just like he's done all nations through history. Even nations that God uses to chasten his people, when they go beyond what he says, God punishes them. It's the same thing is going to be true as the kingdom comes. So you can obviously tell in a chapter like this, there's quite a few aspects of the kingdom that are mentioned. So let me just say a few of them real quick. The kingdom is going to be a time of absolute peace. There's not going to be any war. Okay, so it's going to be peace. Interest into the kingdom is going to be based on faith. It's going to be a spiritual condition that you have to meet to enter the kingdom, which is why Jesus and John the Baptist preached what message? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. So how do you get into the kingdom? There's a spiritual condition that has to be met. And uh, that goes along with our whole study of the new covenant and what happens there. So the kingdom uh, will be a perfect environment for righteous living. Uh, fourthly, we see that the aspects of the kingdom, kingdom life, uh, when we learn about what kingdom life is, it's a warning to those who are living in unrighteousness. 
So life in the kingdom is a warning about being unrighteous. Uh, also, we see the kingdom will be preceded by a time of trouble. We see that it's preceded by a resurrection from the dead, the beginning of the kingdom, at the establishment of the kingdom. This makes perfect sense with other passages that speak of the resurrection and uh, such passages that speak of David ruling and reigning on his throne over Israel in the millennial kingdom. You don't need to spiritualize David into Christ. It can be King David because King David will be resurrected from the dead at the beginning of the, king, at the, beginning of the kingdom and the establishment of the kingdom. So I want to be clear as we conclude here about a different but related idea. The kingdom is primarily about Israel. It's primarily about Israel. The kingdom is primarily about Israel. Okay? You got that? Primarily about Israel. Everything we find out about the kingdom is focused on Israel. Did you see that theme? Even when it talks about the Gentiles, it's all about the Gentiles in relation to Israel or Israel's God. It's all in, in that relationship. The benefits and the blessings that Gentiles have in the kingdom are in a sense secondary or based upon the benefits or blessings that are given to Israel. Uh, in the church today, which is primarily Gentile, okay, we recognize that, right? That the church today, when you look at church, I mean, if we went through all the churches in Nash County and we started counting Jews, I guarantee you we'd get just a small handful, okay? So the church today is primarily Gentiles. The kingdom is primarily Jewish. Primary is Israel. The church is not to be looking for the coming of the kingdom. We're not supposed to be looking for the coming of the kingdom. We're not supposed to be looking for the establishment of the kingdom. Uh, what's the church supposed to be looking for? Starts with an R. Rapture. Rapture. That's what we're looking for. The rapture. When the Lord comes to take his bride, the church. When the Lord comes and those who are living will be raptured and those who have died in Christ will be resurrected. That's what we're looking for. We're not looking for the kingdom. When the Lord comes to establish the kingdom, guess who's going to be with him? The church. The church. So the, the church is going to be right behind the Lord, so to speak, as he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. Okay. Well, I went over a little bit, but I uh, wanted to cover that. So next time we meet, which won't be next week, okay, won't be next week, won't be on the 11th. We'll meet on whatever the Thursday after the 11th is. Um, we'll be looking at verse uh, or chapter 27. So number seven there on your outline it should be the page you got tonight that page and so um, you can do all your homework and get prepared for that and it, it will be uh, helpful i think 
uh, for you to think about those chapters, those passages that we cover. All right, let me pray and we'll be dismissed.